Welcome to Code WAC, your podcast on America's broken healthcare system and how Medicare for All could help. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. Today, we're celebrating the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who championed racial equity, including in healthcare, stigmatized communities such as incarcerated and transgender people often experience such inequities more acutely. How are they faring amid the coronavirus pandemic? Dr. Nina Harawa is a professor in residence at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine. Her opinions are her own. Welcome to Code Whack, Dr. Harawa. You've researched culturally relevant populations living with HIV, including African-American men and transgender individuals. How are these populations affected by the coronavirus pandemic? There is a lot of concern that the coronavirus epidemic is differentially affecting um, sexual and gender minorities, so transgender individuals, um, gay and bisexual individuals. We still don't have a lot of good data on that. Fortunately, there was laws passed in California that actually asked that that information be collected, but I actually haven't seen reports that specifically look at those disparities. There has been some research showing Showing that especially younger gay men are struggling a lot financially because of the coronavirus pandemic, in part because of the types of job industries that they're in were more vulnerable to the pandemic. Maybe they have less family support. One of my concerns, especially about uh, transgender women, is oftentimes they also lack that family support. And one of the things we've we've seen in our research is that even if a transgender woman, for example, has substance use disorders and wants treatment, oftentimes she struggles to find a residential facility that will take her or that will take her and put her in, in the housing that's consistent with her gender. One of the things that's amazing about the, the transgender population is that they really support each other a lot of strong networks of support within that population. But then that also means that people are now living in these group living situations that may not have the same level of sort of public health recommended efforts to control the coronavirus, you know, that are there in, you know, these official residential facilities. What about your research on interventions like to promote PrEP intake to prevent HIV transmission? Do you think it could inform the overall COVID-19 vaccination efforts? You know, I would say both in terms of the, the interventions interventions that I've done and also just like my approach when I speak to communities about HIV treatment, about PrEP, about, you know, other ways to maintain their health. I always try to approach communities uh, from a respectful perspective and understanding that the concerns, the mistrust, the suspicion that sometimes people have often comes from very real places, from histories that people have personally experienced, that they're aware of through their families, from legacies of mistreatment within the medical system, and also recognizing that health literacy in our communities is often very low. I often work to educate people, but doing so in a very kind of open way and acknowledging the fears and the other information that individuals might have. Most of my interventions are peer-based interventions. Uh, So right now, for example, you know, we have people with histories of incarceration and or addiction who are also gay and bisexual men who are working with this population of people who are leaving incarceration. And, you know, part of their role is educating them about PrEP or about treatment, but they're able to do so in a way that I couldn't, right? Because I don't have that the same language and the same knowledge of how it is that these things are perceived within those subgroups. And so, you know, I think it's both to me approaching communities with respect 
realizing that a good public health message is simple and clear. So I think that's important if you're making a billboard. But when you're talking to a group of people, I think it's really important you get into the complexities. And I think oftentimes we don't. Instead, we sort of talk down to people and just sort of tell them what they should do. The coronavirus vaccine, I'm very concerned about the, you know, the slowness in the rollout and some inequities we're seeing in the rollout already. But my concern along with all of that is how do we ensure that our communities have the right information? Tell me about the inequities you've noticed in the vaccine rollout. It depends on where you go. One of the things that was particularly concerning to me was a report I heard from Florida. It was literally like a first come, first serve. Like, oh, now it's open. You spend an hour, two hours online or on the phone trying to get an appointment. And then you show up and wait in line. You know, those types of things. Like, I, there's no reason, in my opinion, that our vaccine distribution should be on a first come, first serve basis. It really should be based on need and risk. And there's very good recommendations that have been put out by the National Academy of Sciences by the CDC that really should guide how different groups are being prioritized, but that's not necessarily the way it's happening within states. You know, we hear some of these stories from LA County where people are jumping in line because it's just the way it's been organized. Like within healthcare settings, there's been some story. They had these outdoor vaccine sort of setups and people were for, for healthcare workers. And then people were jumping, the gen, members of the general public were just getting in line and getting vaccinated. So, you know, but going back to some of the goals of this, of your work in this podcast, if we had a universal healthcare system, we could do this in an organized and equitable way, right? Because we would have a database or maybe it would be 50 databases of patients and you would know what age they were. You would know what comorbidities they had. Hopefully you would be collecting basic data on social determinants of health because we know that those are as important as somebody's blood pressure or their BMI. And that would allow us to have a system for distributing this vaccine that was as equitable as possible. We don't have that. We also don't have the federal will and organization to create something close in the absence of it. And so I think depending on what state or what jurisdiction somebody is in, the distribution may or may not be equitable. So do you think that there should be federal guidelines on that or requirements? The federal government needs to be much more directive in how this is going. There are guidelines that the CDC and has put out, but there's no no mandate at all for them to follow it. I think, again, this goes back to sort of like this maybe states' rights type of issue, but thinking about you know, Martin Luther King and, and his legacy and his, you know, the way he addressed issues of health care and health justice. And, you know, one of the threads through his work, whether it was talking about health care or other services like education, transportation, etc., was the role of the federal government. And the fact that the federal government in King's time was actually often funding segregation, segregated distribution of services. And so, you know, the famous Martin Luther King quote where he says, of all forms of inequity, injustice in health is the most shocking and inhumane, was part of a discussion about Medicare and Medicaid, which was passed in 1965. And the fact that a lot of this federal money was still going to hospitals and providers who were discriminatory in the ways that they were allocating care, either through segregation of their their services or through direct discrimination and refusal of care to Black people. And so, you know, King called for lawsuits and direct action to address that. 
But if you look at both his discussion of that and other uh, types of inequities, he's often calling on the federal government to do what is within its power. You know, the federal government is distributing these vaccines. So in my opinion, regardless of whatever other states' rights argument are, they could put conditions on that distribution that would require an equitable plan of the states who were getting those vaccines and then how they were going to allocate that. Can you tell us more about your research in both the fields of incarceration and HIV AIDS? You know, all my research in incarceration has focused around HIV. I've looked at uh, some intervention measures around HIV within incarceration, including condom distribution in jails and prisons. Some of the work that myself and others were a part of helped lead to the uh, policy changes that have allowed um, condom distributions within the prison system for the state of California. Um, And we're one of the few states that actually makes condoms available to people in, in custody. Most of my work now involves interventions for people as they leave and helping them either connect to HIV care if they're living with HIV, connect to um, HIV care services post-release, or link them to prevention services if they're HIV negative and at increased risk. We know that that period when people leave custody is, is a very, very high-risk period for, for illness, for overdose, for all, many different types of health threats. And so we really work to meet people prior to incarceration, develop a plan for wellness, and then support them as they leave and in the months after to try to um, get them on a plan of health um, in that post-release period. Did you want to tell us about your studies? I'll just have two different studies. One is funded by the California HIV AIDS Research Program, and that's for HIV negative uh, men of sex with men and transgender women. And then the other is funded by the National Institutes of Minority Health Disparities and focus on the same population, but young, young people who are living with HIV, and we work to ensure that they have health care coverage, that they have a provider that they can go to, and then also link them to social services, because often those are as important for getting people the health care that they need as is just knowing that you have a doctor or that you have access to care. When a population is released from jail, is it the first several months to a year that they're kind of in jeopardy, or how long does that period last? Yeah, great question. There was a famous study that was done in the um, state of Washington that looked at the two weeks following release and found this you know, multifold increase in mortality just in that two-week period following release. So that's probably the highest risk period. But there have been studies that have looked longer. I'm not aware of a study that's maybe sort of looked at what, maybe where that drops off. But we know that that immediate period is very risky. And it's not the only place like this, but LA County, I think, is particularly problematic because people are often released in the middle of the night and they're released very close to Skid Row. And so many, many different threats to health or to sobriety you know, are very common, literally kind of a few blocks away from where people are released. Overdose is very high on the list. So is violence. Um, But then longer term, it tends to be things like HIV and hepatitis and cirrhosis that are people who are post-incarcerated and are at increased risk for. Wow. What other challenges does this population face? Then the other two issues are just the disruption of incarceration. People may now, you know, they couldn't pay their rent, so they've lost their home or or they've lost where they're living. They couldn't go to work, so they may have lost their job. 
So there, there are those disruptions. And, and then finally, we have what they call the Medicaid Exclusion Act. And so when somebody goes to jail or prison, they're no longer eligible for Medicaid. In some cases, that gets suspended. In other cases, it gets canceled altogether. And so then people have to go through that bureaucratic process of getting their health care back, which is often not an easy thing. And oftentimes the people who are disproportionately incarcerated, you know, have lower levels of education, maybe more likely to have learning disabilities, et cetera. And so they often need help in being able to, you know, be able to access services that they, you know, are now entitled to again, but they have to go through this bureaucratic process to get access. But then there's other services that they're often no longer able to have access to. So uh, it could be that if they have public assistance for housing, they may no longer be eligible for that. So being more likely to contract HIV, do you think that's tied to these things? Yes, and incarceration disrupts relationships. So somebody may have been in an ongoing relationship, and now that partner's, you know, no longer there. And so there's also that increased sexual mixing that that can occur. Thank you, Dr. Harawa. An editor's note, Dr. Harawa noted after our interview that despite State Senator Scott Wiener's COVID tracking bill, LGBTQ data are largely not being collected and definitely not being reported in California. Find more Code Whack episodes on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. You can also subscribe to Code Whack wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast is powered by Heal California, uplifting the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. I'm Brenda Kazar.